mentally, physically. everybody and welcome it's 11 p.m eastern time wednesday october 12th 2022 and thank you for joining us for the 138th episode of the rock and roll shrink radio show here on blog talk radio special thanks to our host ndb media i'm casey shapiro and with me tonight is dr stephen mathis aka the rock and roll shrink We do want to give you guys a special announcement that we have hinted is coming, and now we have a bit of a timeline in mind. Um, Dr. Mathis is abandoning us cruelly to move to the West Coast. I'm crying. Mm. (laughs) He's having a house (laughs) built out west. (laughs) Um, But what it means is tonight is going to be our last show, probably until around or right after Thanksgiving. And I will keep you all informed on the Facebook page and anywhere else that you're watching. Um, But this will be the last show because the movers will have come before the next show. So wanted to let you know that. Thank you very much. Uh, We'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. And before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. This show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on the show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, and are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now, a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. Thank you. 
that and if you don't mind please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic well um that it was i thought since this is going to be our last show for a while i'd go out with the bang i.e one of my songs <laughs> <laughs> so okay. it's uh yeah so it's uh a song called thoughts which talks about uh the roles people play in their lives and to be able to differentiate between reality and fantasy, but to have a goal that you have for yourself as long as it's attainable and then don't let anybody stop you to go for that goal, whatever you have to do. I was originally going to do uh, the old Joe South song, Games People Play, but that's literally three chords over and over and over and over. And I don't think anybody <laughs> would like, it's like, okay, dude, I heard the first, 30 seconds of that, you're doing the same shit over and again. I'm like, yeah, no kidding, but that's all the course of the song. So I decided not to do that one and in lieu do my own uh, piece. So there you have it. Fair enough. And I'm going to play the three chords till you get tired of the three chords. <laughs> yeah, really, no kidding. Yeah, all right. So, yes, that, that makes sense. Thank you. And as Dr. Mathis mentions, tonight's episode is entitled Games People Play – LARP and gaming as social therapy. And th this is a nod to Joe South and also a slight nod to Alan Parsons project who also has a song by that title. And we'll discuss all that stuff in a minute. So before we begin our main topic discussion, let's first go to the rock and roll shrink recall, a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir. Okay, so I have talked in the past, um, I think I did a trivia section on some of the uh, Gibson guitars that uh, Eric Clapton plays typically, uh, or has played in his career, because normally, if most people know Clapton, uh, particularly more modern day Clapton, and, and I mean by that the last, say, 20 to 25 years, um, <clears throat> excuse me, even longer than that. Uh, probably the last, I would say, 40-something years. He's notoriously known for predominantly playing a Fender Stratocaster. But he has played a number of different guitars over his history. And I talked a little bit about some of the uh, Gibsons he's played. But tonight what I thought I would do 
uh, start from the beginning and bring you up the listener up to current times with the plethora uh, of various instruments he's played. And while he has predominantly played Fenders and Gibsons, he's also played a couple of uh, different uh, acoustics. Uh, most people, of course, know the Tears in Heaven guitar, which is a Martin, uh, but he's also played uh, Juan Alvarez uh, classical. But I'll, I'll get to that. So when he first started playing, uh, the first guitar he got were his... Uh, or his grandparents, who he thought were his parents, because as most people know, um, his mother had him out of wedlock at the time with a Canadian soldier who then went back to Canada, and she went off and had the kid and then came back and left the kid in the care of her parents, who then pretty much uh, told Clapton that he thought you know, that they were his parents and that this other woman was his older sister, quote-unquote, and it wasn't until he was in his early teens that he found out the real story, and you can imagine uh, how that went over, uh, which is part of the reason he's had a lot of depression issues over his life, and also why he identified with the blues, uh, the black blues artists uh, in America so much, I think, was a big calling for him, because they were, you know, talking about sad times and, you know, feeling out of place and rejected, and that was kind of what he was going through, and I think has struggled with a large portion of his life, which is, I think, why he became a drug addict and an alcoholic. However, that does not talk about the guitars. <laughs> so, um, his first guitar he got at 13, which was a Hoyer acoustic, which I'm understanding at the time uh, was a fairly decent guitar. But uh, Clapton has talked about it being so, the, the action being so abysmal on it that it was just like very off-putting, but he stayed with it anyway. And he eventually... Uh, got his hands on a 19, moved from that to a 1960s K, I think it was a 775, a Jazz 2 775, um, which he got uh, roughly in 62 and played it through 62 and 63. And then once he got into the Yardbirds, uh, which was his first major act, he played with the, uh, prior to that, he was playing with a, a more local man called the Roosters, and I think that's what he had the, uh, the K Jazz 2 with. Then when he got with the Yardbirds, their manager decided to get him a, you know, an upgrade, and they got him a Cherry uh, Fender Telecaster, which he played roughly from 63 to 67, which was uh, through most of the Yardbirds and then part of the uh, John Mayall and Cream era, in the beginning of the Cream era. Uh, then he went from the 63, he managed to get his hands on a Gibson ES-335, and that was around 64 that he had uh, through 64 to 67. And the appeal of the Gibson uh, ES-335, which most people, if you know anything about the guitar, it's a semi-hollow body, uh, kind of a semi-big body, but a thin, thinner line uh, than some of the big jazz guitars, uh, was a favorite of a lot of the, the older black blues artists in America that were playing electric guitars, the Chicago blues people. Uh, so he just, he really loved that. And, and to be honest, it's a great guitar. I have a couple of them and really like them. Uh, not necessarily a 64, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I have a couple that are uh, really cool. Uh, then he managed in 65, and this was during his uh, stint with John Mayall. Uh, which is during the time period right after the Yardbirds. He left the Yardbirds to go with just to go to John Mayall shortly uh, in that era, uh, where the Clapton is God thing was all all over the uh, walls of the subways or, or the quote unquote underground. 
And he got a 1960 Les Paul standard, which he uh, called a Beano burst. And the reason he's called it was a kind of a tobacco-y, sort of a light tobacco-y sunburst, almost like a kind of kind of like cafe mochaccino kind of kind of color. And I think the reason that he named it that is because the famous record he did with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, um, which has been sort of titled the quote-unquote Beano record, is because he's reading a Beano comic in the front cover of that uh, magazine, The Picture of the Band, and it's forever become the Beano record. And that was the one where he got his nickname in uh, Slow Hand because he was doing all these like incredible runs in, in blues that nobody had ever heard before, and he had this great tone because he's playing Les Paul through a Marshall, and he had found the Marshall shortly before that and took it into the studio with him and just loved it. Um, he then, 66, he got his hands on a red guitar of Gibson Les Paul. It was a 57 that he nicknamed Lucy, and he played that till, uh, till about 68, when he gifted the guitar to George Harrison, who had it for a number of years. Uh, and then w- during the Cream era, uh, he played a couple of guitars, but his probably the biggest guitar he played was a 1965 uh, Gibson SG, which had been painted psychedelic colors, the, the so-called the Fool guitar. Uh, and he played that from 67 to 69. He also, during that era, um, played a Gibson reverse Firebird. And I've only seen him with that on a couple of... Uh, couple of videos of shows with cream it's uh basically it's a one pickup model i think that's the uh, firebird three but don't quote me on that one uh but it's it's the reverse firebird which is the normal quote-unquote firebird because if you look at most firebird gibson firebirds um they look like they were uh, designed for a left-handed guitar player that they flipped over for right-handed player so everything's reversed ergo the name reverse firebird uh, with banjo tuners, so the tuners come out straight to the back like a banjo. And guitar players typically either really like their guitar or really hate it. There's no uh, there's no war- lukewarm reception for that guitar. <laughs> and um, there's one pickup version, there's two pickup versions, and there's three pickup versions. The three pickup versions are the Firebird Sevens, uh, and they typically have gold hardware. And I love Firebirds. I have probably six or seven of them. Uh, and I have reverse ones, which is the more quote-unquote normal one. And then Gibson came out with a non-reverse model uh, in the early to mid-60s, but they fared even worse than the Firebirds did. But if you have one of those, they are very rare and very uh, pricey if you can get your hands on it. And I actually have one, an original 63 non-reverse. It, it's really cool. But anyway, uh, he played a 68 Tobacco Burst, uh, one pickup Firebird. And then at some point... Uh, in 68, he also got his hands on a 1950s uh, Gibson Les Paul Gold Top. Uh, and those kind of are, are, like, they're almost iconic guitars. Joe Walsh has played about I mean, a shoot ton of people have played them. Uh, they're very, very popular. Uh, and he still, he's played that on and off throughout his career with different bands. And then uh, he got toward the end of the Cream era. And then he played the, the, um, the Cherry ES-335 through part of the Cream era as well. In fact, he played the very last concert at Royal Albert Hall that they played uh, with ES-335. And then during 67, which is would take him out of the Cream era into the Blind Faith era, uh, he also played the, the Cherry during some of the uh, Blind Faith stuff. 
Uh, he's when he got into Stratocasters, and he got a 1955 Fender Strat that he nicknamed Brownie because it was brown, <laughs> you know, catchy title. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he played that one for. Yeah, oh my God, say it's not true, right? And I, that was one uh, that he that he played to uh, 67 to 70, and that kind of became his go-to guitar. Uh, that one in Blackie, which is the one that he sold for like ridiculous, that he donated for ridiculous amount of money to fund the uh, Crossroads uh, Treatment Center. But at any rate, um, he played a brownie, and that was from 67 to 70. And then at some point, he ended up with a Dan Electro in 69. He ended up, which would have been the late cream early Blind Faith era. He ended up with a Dan Electro 3021 that somebody had custom painted very psychedelically. And it wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't the same group of people that played, that did the full guitar, but it's very, very different looking. And uh, I've only actually seen one picture of him with that guitar, and that was in a rehearsal with Blind Faith. Uh, so I, I don't know if he actually ever played that on stage or not, and that's the only way I can document that. Um, he then, in 71 which would have been Derek and Domino's era and solo and leading into the solo era. Uh, he ended up uh, with a Gibson Birdland, a white Birdland, which is kind of unusual because most of the Birdlands are either uh, sunburst or um, kind of cherry looking, cherry red. Uh, and he still plays that on and off. I, I don't know. I don't even know if he still has a guitar now, but he's played it on and off since about uh, 71. For those people who don't know, the Gibson Birdland is kind of the cream of the crop of the big body jazz guitars for a Gibson. Uh, it's the guitar that uh, Ted Nugent plays a lot. You'll see him. He's got probably 35 Birdlands. He plays a lot of that guitar, uh, and he plays that a lot. Uh, he also plays PR, a couple of PRS guitars, but he really likes his Birdland. That's kind of his go-to, you know, uh, worshipful guitar, as he calls it. Um, and then 74 to 77, um, he got his hands on a Gibson Explorer uh, made from Carina wood, uh, which is an old school. It's a great sounding wood. They used to make Los Pauls from it. Gibson did. Um, but it's a really, 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 really hard word, wood to work with. And if you, it, it's very hard and very dense. So it conducts tone incredibly well. And Explorers are another one of those guitars that people either love or hate. There's no lukewarm reception to an Explorer um, because a lot of them are kind of top-heavy, uh, or at least they're notorious for being top-heavy. So are the uh, reverse firebirds, which is another reason that folks uh, don't like them. They, they complain of the, the guitar neck diving uh, because the um, tuning uh, keys on the headstock kind of make it dive down. And, you know, I've never had that problem with either, and I haven't explored, uh, I've never had the problem with the Explorer or any of my uh, firebirds, and I guess I've just been lucky, but uh, I'm not complaining. <laughs> but... But Karina wood's a great uh, resonant wood, but it's really, really, really hard to work with. And if you're carving with it and you hit it the wrong way, the whole thing just splits and you've got to start over, which is one of the reasons that you don't see Gibson making a lot of Karinas. They will occasionally make a throwback, you know, custom shop, you know, uh, classic reliving kind of thing. And if you see those guitars come out, in fact, they just reissued uh, a Korean Explorer that I saw at my uh, crack dealer's house, uh, crack dealer's uh, shop, uh, Righteous Guitars here in Roswell, <laughs> Georgia. I'm going to miss that when I move. And uh, 
I guess I'll have to go to uh, GA Guitars Anonymous uh, <laughs> standpoint. <laughs> but anyway, um, they have a Korean X, one of the customer issue Korean Explorers in there, and they're just insanely expensive. Uh, and because it's just it's a lot of work, and they lose a lot of guitars with the Korean wood because they split and they have to start over. Anyway, uh, Clapton played one uh, roughly from 74 to 77. Now, he would interchange these guitars. I don't want to imply that, okay, now I'm playing this, I'm not playing these. Ooh, now I'm playing that. I mean, you would see him playing these guitars during this era, and he would interspace, you know, I- interface them with other guitars he was playing at the time. Um, probably the most famous one that, that you see him with, the, the, the Blackie, uh, is a 1950 Strat, and that's the one that he sold, uh, gave to, to in 83, played it from 79 to 83. Um, and that was the one that you see uh, that he donated to um, give at auction to, to fund this uh, Crossroads uh, Treatment Center for Addicts. Uh, that was one of the guitars he gave up to auction. Uh, he plays a lot of custom shop replicas of that guitar today, and that's kind of the most one you see him with. Uh, in nowadays, during the uh, unplugged era, and when he plays uh, some of the blues, the acoustic bluesy stuff, um, he'll usually either play a Martin Triple O Forty Two, Nineteen Thirty Nine, or he'll play a Seventy Seven One Alvarez Classical. And he played the classical uh, ninety two through ninety six, and I think the classical is actually what he played uh, Tears in Heaven on, and he might have recorded that in addition with the Martin. Uh, but I think live he was probably playing the Alvarez, but don't quote me on that. But the Alvarez roughly was from 92 to 96, and the, the uh, 1939 Martin was from 92 to 2004. Uh, so when you see him playing acoustic-y kinds of things, you'll see him usually with the Martin. Um, and then occasionally he'll sit down and play a jazzy, bluesy stuff, and he'll have one of the Gibson uh, semi-hollow bodies of the hollow bodies. The Birdland is a true hollow body. The pickups are mounted on the face of the guitar. So it's kind of like an acoustic guitar with pickups on it. Uh, the semi-hollow bodies have the uh, – that's the big difference. The semi-hollow bodies have uh, a, a slab of wood going through the middle, and the pickups are actually connected to the slab of wood in the body of the guitar – which makes it a little less acoustic-y. Uh, it, I mean, they're very great sounding guitars, but they're a little less pure acoustic-y than the uh, full hollow bodies. But the full hollow bodies have a notorious reputation. So do the semis, but the, the hollows are even worse. Uh, a reputation of feeding back. So if you turn them, if you turn an amp up loud like Ted Nugent does, um, you run the risk of feeding back if you get really close to the amp. Now Ted has used that to his advantage, and that's become kind of a signature thing for him. Uh, and you hear him do it on uh, when he was with the Amboy Dukes on Journey to the Center of Their Mind. And you hear him do it a lot with uh, songs like Stranglehold and that sort of thing. But if you don't know how to control it or if, you, if you're not really good at it, it's just annoying as heck. Because you'll be playing and you'll walk over the amp to do something and you'll forget that you're playing a hollow body. And you just hear the strangle come over the amp and everybody puts their hands <laughs> over their ears you know, it's just very, it's its really annoying. I can't even tell you how many hundreds of times I've done that. Uh, and you just have to remember to, like, hold the guitar out with your left hand way far from the amp as you reach to the, uh, the amp and turn the volume or adjust whatever so you don't hear that. You know, it's just, oh, my God, it's annoying. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, if, you want, you know, if, if you do it on purpose and it's part of the song, it's great. But if you just walk over to the amp between songs, you go to you hear this, you know, the audience gives you the dirty look and puts their hands on their ears and... It's uh, it's 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 tres annoying and embarrassing. <laughs> but, uh, I bet. But Ted does yeah. a great, 
Yeah, Ted, Ted does a great job with it. He's he's really good with it. But they're they're tricky. Now, if you're not playing really really loudly, um, they're less of a problem. But that was part of the problem that um, that Chad Atkins would run into. Uh, particularly when he was playing the, the Gretsch semi-hollows and the hollows because they had single coal pickups back in the day uh, until they came out with the uh, humbuckers. And, and if you weren't touching the strings, not only would they howl at you if you turned your amp up, but then they had this like, the 60 cycle hum if your hands weren't on the strings grounding it, uh, oh. which used to drive Chet crazy, which is why he had the, the kill switch put on his guitar until Ray Butts uh, came out with the uh, with the with the um, humbucker pickups, and he and uh, Seth Lover, who was working for Gibson, were kind of at a competition. And Seth Lover, I think I talked about this on one of these things. Seth Lover actually got to the patent office quicker, but actually uh, Roy Butts is the guy that actually invented the humbucker, uh, but he just didn't get it to the patent office. So. Seth Lover is always the guy that who was working for Gibson and is always credited with coming up with it, but he really didn't. But I digress. Anyway, that's Clapton's guitars, and what you'll most often see him with uh, live, if you see him today, is a Strat and a Martin, if he's going to play acoustic. And then if he plays big body uh, jazz type guitars, he'll have a Gibson. So uh, there you okay. have it. Wow, that was <laughs> Yeah, okay. no, that that was good though. Thank you very much for that. Excellent. Okay. Um, again, we will take calls from our listeners and questions in the online chat room throughout the evening until around midnight. So feel free to give us a call. Again, the number is nine one four three three eight zero three one four. Alrighty. Games people play, LARP and gaming as social therapy. We're going to be a little nerdy tonight, but I promise I have nerfed of this for non-gamers, so this should make sense. (laughs) Um, Not everyone is a gamer, but in the last couple of decades at least, role-playing games have become more commonly well-known enough to where at least most people have heard of them somewhat or have a few friends who play. Also, the societal stigma against gaming and gamers has lessened and softened significantly, which helps. You know, we actually did an episode on gaming addiction, and we talked about that somewhat. But that's a different perspective than we're doing tonight. Role-playing games specifically involve play that requires the player to portray someone else. And there are an enormous variety of traits and aspects of characters that one could pretend to be. Now, what does this have to do with mental health therapy, you may ask, (laughs) and you may well ask. Uh, So most role-playing games, and especially LARPs, which are live-action role-playing games, often encourage players to be detailed about their fictional character as if one were creating an entire story or a movie character, you know, a theater character. So having to do this process can involve detailed examination and analysis of motives, cultures, behaviors, uh, the society you're in, and many other aspects that we might take for granted, like physical bodies, family structure, environment, etc. There are hundreds of games out there, and, it really is pretty limitless because there are games that are 
more or less taking place in the world we know, and there are games where you aren't even human. You know, like a Star Wars game, for example. You could be lots of stuff. <clears throat> so, at any rate, tonight we want to talk about, first, understanding role-playing game structure and character creation. Not to turn everyone into a nerd, but we want you to understand some of the basics about gaming because it's relevant to the next part. Um, there are similarities to method acting, quote-unquote, as well as social therapy. And we'll get into both of those a tiny bit. And then some issues with gaming for processing reality. It's a very good tool for that, but gaming can often have a lot of escapism as well, which can also be a useful tool. It's just that some of these things run the risk of going too far for some people. You need to know if you're one of them. You need to have a way to not get carried away with leaving reality and so forth. So we're going to talk about all that. And then conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. And I'm going to check in with Dr. Mathis before we get started, see if there's anything you want to say before we jump I'm in. good. Thank you. No, I'm good. All righty. Okay. Did you make your, your saving role? <laughs> Dr. Mathis is not a gamer, so I'm going to tease him about this tonight. Um, okay. So first, understanding role-playing games, structure, and character creation. And... When I say understanding this, I mean from the point of view of getting them enough so that we can have this conversation. So to understand just enough of the process of role-playing games to make it a non-traditional but very useful tool in personal or social therapy, one does not have to be an actual gamer or even find the activity of interest. So let's talk for a minute about some common aspects of most role-playing games both tabletop, which is where you play sitting together over some visual aids like a map. Uh, you have those little representational figures that are supposed to be armies or your character or something. And you have dice or some other method to determine random factors mathematically. Some people use playing cards. Some people have apps for this now, all kinds of stuff. So there, that's tabletop. And then we have LARP, which, as I mentioned, is live-action role-playing, which may kind of seem like improv theater with a cheat sheet or a murder mystery weekend, if you've heard of those. So here are examples of several traits, skills, and or situations that frequently come up in most role-playing games at some point, whether you're LARPing or playing tabletop or even some of the video games. Um, and these would be useful things to master in real life. And in point of fact, some CBT clinicians call these, quote, target behaviors. So here's an example of just some, and there's many more than this, but I don't want to be here, you know, for another couple hours. <laughs> so uh, charisma and leadership structure, creativity and inspiring different solutions to familiar or past problems, like how do we get into the locked room to get the treasure? And the people who are playing the characters might need to think of a new way because the way they did last game doesn't work anymore. These kinds of stuff, you know, the stretching of uh, solving things. Uh, dealing with changes that happen by pure chance and also sometimes poor planning. Um, that's a coping skill, and sometimes there are people who have a pathology that make it hard for them to cope with that. So this is a good place to try that out. Uh, dealing with foreign cultures, 
races, and by this I mean like human, not human, um, time periods, societies, cuisines, governmental structures, religious beliefs, medical needs, etc., um, interacting with complete strangers. This is a thing this kind of therapy is used for quite a bit because that's a lot of what you do in role-playing games. Um, managing resources, including having a home base and supplies for you to go on your adventure that you're going on. Um, currency, barter, foraging. Uh, how much time and strength do you have to do stuff? You know, Did you overdo it? Now you're tired and you can't do the thing. Uh, locating what one needs in a strange setting. These are all basic life skills, and they get used a lot in role-playing, and role-playing as therapy can teach people this without... What, sometimes when it's personal and it's real life, people can't absorb the lesson for reasons. Uh, we can talk about that, but it, it's a long and convoluted uh, subtopic, so we're not going to get into that, but just take my word for it. <laughs> um, managing skill sets and learning new things within the given available structure. Like um, maybe there's a game mechanic for learning new stuff, or maybe it becomes a plot device. Like, hi, if you if you please the man sitting in the back of the tavern, he'll teach you a cool trick, you know, something like that. You never know. Um, politics, diplomacy, negotiation, peacekeeping, etiquette, manners, and why they matter subterfuge, deception, and recognizing its use on you, uh, the value in boundaries and not oversharing, uh, understanding archetypes, stereotypes, and symbolism, working in a group towards a common goal, making temporary alliances and strategy, being able to break this down and analyze it externally, meaning you know, this is all fictional. The situation is fictional. It's uh, a plot device, and it's not anything you're actually dealing with. This makes it not personal, and sometimes this can offer new insight or ideas for coping and socialization that traditional therapy may not or could not previously impart successfully. And with this, I'm going to pause and check in with Dr. Mathis and see if you'd like to expand on anything. Uh, I'm okay, actually. I, I work with gamers, and that's the only reason I know anything about half the stuff you're talking about, because I don't, <laughs> I'm not a role-play gamer. My idea of gaming yeah. is things like, you know, Pac-Man and, uh, you know, that sort of thing, the old school uh, stuff. But uh, I work with, with yeah. several people who are gamers, and they've been very helpful with this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and even the old video games do have little tiny bits of the things I'm talking about. Cause you have to, you, you have certain number of bombs to use on the monster and you have to watch oh, where right. you're going mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. only have four mm-hmm. quarters and the whole thing, you know, so it, it is the start of using those skills. In, yeah, in absolutely. So, yeah. All righty. Um, let's go ahead and go to section two, which is similarities to method acting as well as social therapy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on method acting, um, and in fact, I didn't actually, it didn't save the description that I had earlier, but I'm just going to tell you, cause I did 
get my degree in acting so I can explain it basically to you guys. So in the name of accurate information, let's define method acting and the Stanislavski method. Stanislavski was a acting teacher who came up with that way of approaching it. And this is just to be certain we have a common frame of reference. Um, so essentially when they say method acting, this the method is to completely immerse yourself in as much as you can in the world of the character that you're going to be playing. This doesn't work well if the character is extremely fictional, like not possibly of this world because there's no way to recreate that life. But you hear about actors that sequester themselves or go work a job that the character works or live the life the character lives. Um, for example, Christian Bale, that was a, you know Batman, uh, The Machinist, some other movies, uh, was known for doing this to the point of sometimes personal detriment. He went a little too far with it. He's not the only one. Um, you know, sometimes the characters that they play are so extreme that the actors can kind of lose themselves doing this process. So it's it's somewhat controversial because of that. And a lot of people question, you know, is that really necessary for good portrayal? And truthfully, it's subjective. There are some actors that really works well for and there's some actors who are like, I, I could do this without cooping myself up in a strange apartment and losing my head. <laughs> so basically, that is method acting. comes from Stanislavski. It is not the only way you teach people to act. It's just one way. And I'm just bringing it up because immersing yourself in the life of another person has to do with what we're talking about tonight. And that's why I wanted you to know. So when we say that gaming resembles this process. We mean that the process of flushing out many basic aspects of a fictional character's personality for the purpose of portraying them consistently to itself and its design, the character, um, and accurately to any traits we have established in gameplay, such as their gender, uh, their culture, mannerisms, goals, values, relationships, skills, etc. You know, that is what we mean. So we go into details that we may or may not actually use. You can't predict these things. That's part of the play is that this is a surprise, like real life. You get up and you do your day and things happen. And that's the same thing in role playing. So we write down these things to know that character because who knows what's going to happen to them that day. And you want to be prepared to react as they would likely react depending on how you built them. Um, we want to have a, a full understanding of how to portray them understandably in a variety of game settings. The reason that some therapies are focused on these things is that there are a wide variety of pathologies, all with various causes. But what they have in common is that they have either impaired the growth of a healthy sense of basic adult skills and in interacting with or functioning in the world with others, or these pathologies can deteriorate a previously healthy and balanced ability to do so. Like if you develop a phobia or a trauma and you're terrified to ride the bus now or you don't want to go out, you know, agoraphobia or something like that or having to do with strangers is terrifying now because you were assaulted or, you know, all kinds of things can happen. So examples of just some of a long list of pathologies and conditions which may need social therapy, might be 
uh, ADHD, autism, Asperger's, and those of you who follow our program know that we kind of don't like the new edit, so we refer to Asperger's separately. Uh, brain trauma, TBI, traumatic brain injury, uh, dementia, or, or Alzheimer's, any of the other similar uh, pathologies, CPTSD or other long-term traumas, basically any condition that impairs one's ability to trust in one's own personal discernment, processing implication and context, a sense of reality and perspective, and social cues of many kinds, including hints and personal boundaries. Using role-playing to work through some of these social issues also helps with empathy, sympathy, and absorbing expected or neurotypical behaviors in various situations. All right, here is an article, and it is somewhat long, but it'll explain a lot of this process in process, like how this became popular and what you do with it exactly. So this is an article about a therapist who's incorporating this technique, and it gets into some details as to why this way, choices and structure, and recent results with it. And this is entitled, Role-Playing Games Like, Quote, Dungeons and Dragons Can Actually Heal the Mind and Body. This was written by staff members in February 2022 at Hornet.com, which is a queer technology platform uh, providing a community home base of 35 million users to connect with their community anytime, anywhere. I don't actually know where they are based. Um, that's not available on the website, which is fine. You know, it's a, it's a tech community, so to some extent it may not matter, but the the main articles on there appear to be American culture, and I think that's actually relevant, so I wanted to address that. All right, here's the article. A 2000, year 2000, I mean, survey estimated that 5.5 million people in the United States alone regularly play tabletop role-playing games, RPGs, like Dungeons and Dragons. By 2017, that number had jumped astronomically to 15 million in North America. The gameplay provides an immersive escapism as players lose themselves for hours at a time, sitting around a table with others, acting out the charismatic personality of an elven bard, or fighting with the sheer power of a dwarven barbarian. It can be therapeutic. So much so, in fact, that one researcher, Hawk, with an E at the end of this name, Robinson has spearheaded research to discover whether RPGs can also help people gain physical and mental skills on a medical level. And I did edit some of this article to take out the part about physical skills because that's not really quite what we're focusing on. So just to let you know. All right, Robinson believes that people who have a wide spectrum of disabilities can benefit from what he calls RPG therapy. Autistic people, people with traumatic brain injuries, cerebral palsy, or even schizophrenia. So far, he's seen evidence of RPG's therapeutic qualities ranging from building motor skills like physical movement to increasing schizophrenic patients' grasp on reality and lowering their dependence on antipsychotic drugs. There's also a whole branch of RPGs that involves going out into the real world donning costumes, and picking up prop weapons known as LARP or live-action role-play, a system in which people collaborate in an imagined world 
with the same kind of rules that one finds in a traditional tabletop RPG. Beyond physical tasks, RPGs also exercise the brain for cognitive tasks and social situations. Players practice social interactions when role-playing by questioning villagers for information, plotting your next move with fellow players, and practicing diplomacy with enemies. If a player feels socially awkward going to the grocery store, and they decide to play as a bard with exceptionally high charisma, which for you non-nerds translates to the exact opposite of socially awkward. (laughs) It's only partly accurate, but it'll do for now as a placeholder. (laughs) Uh, The bard character will help them practice conversation and social skills. And so it's a way of detaching from your actual self to practice something that's been hard for you when you're being yourself. But you can be the bard who by the statistics that you rolled up for your character, is excellent at this. And so the game can process that for you. But Hawk's research goes beyond the beneficial effects of everyday RPGs into RPGs specifically helping people with specific disabilities. For example, Hawk wanted to teach some autistic people who were having trouble using public transit about how to ride the bus. Taking a cue from smartphone RPGs like Habitica, which reward you with levels and virtual items for working on your life skills, Hawk developed in-person systems to reward his players for mastering skills required for using public transit. Now, I have a note here, and this is my note, not from the article. The app Habitica, uh, which is Habit, I-C-A, And the gamification of non-game things, like household chores, for example, is now a whole subgenre of personal growth, help, and time management apps. And basically, Habatica is like playing D&D, except instead of doing D&D things, you clean your house and you win something. You get better equipment and you do things. So it's turned a a chore that annoys you into role-playing game. And some people find that very helpful. So that's what that is. The autistic players in this therapy practice role-played as members of a crime-fighting group and had to work together to read an actual bus schedule. Their LARP quest involved actually boarding a bus and practicing tasks like asking a homeless man for information regarding their quest. Simple tasks, but their quest was far more heroic. They had to stop a villain from releasing a zombie apocalypse upon the city. Now, of course, I'm sitting here wondering if they told people who are not involved in the game that they were doing this and whether somebody called the police on them. I don't know. They, they don't have a lot of details about how they went about this, but I'm assuming it was therapeutic by the way the article was written. All right. Hawk emphasized that winning the adventure was not the goal of the LARPing, regardless of whether the city gets overtaken by zombies. The players win because they're exposed to therapy just by playing. If you go from not being able to use the bus to being entirely capable, you just, quote, leveled up in real life. Hawk went on to explain that not all therapeutic RBGs are structured like this one, with its heavy emphasis on life skills education. RPGs created with motor or social skills therapy in mind provide a sense of safety. Traditional therapy can be scary, after all, due to preconceptions about what it entails. Physical therapy can be painful, and group therapy can be embarrassing and make you feel exposed. 
RPG therapy, on the other hand, comes at you with fun first. The therapy hides behind the game, and that makes the medicine all that easier to swallow. Therapeutic RPGs can also offer a formal structure, which can be massively beneficial to some patients, like those with autism or schizophrenia. Hawk spoke of two groups of schizophrenic patients, one of which was simply handed the handbooks to play a tabletop RPG and left to their own devices. Though they became obsessed with playing, disconnected from reality more often, and became worse off overall. The second group used structure. Instead of simply handing the patients the player's handbook, the therapist gave them rules and worked with them to keep a healthy, healthy distance from the game's escapism. The results of this group were phenomenal. The patient's ability to separate facts from fiction increased. They disconnected from reality less due to the newfound ability to go in and out of their character. And most notably, the group became less dependent on the amounts of antipsychotic drugs needed to function. Structure proves a key element, and this is really what differentiates RPG therapy sessions from other RPGs. It's not just gaming. RPG therapy involves carefully tailoring of the play session around the needs of the players, a structure typically provided by a, quote, game master therapist. This is actually now considered to be a bona fide position in the community, uh, being, you know, mental health professionals. Uh, at the time of this writing, there is no industry standard to define what a game master therapist is. Essentially, though, a game master therapist will be someone who has both the experience of a therapist and extensive experience as a gamer and or a dungeon master or storyteller, depending on what genre you're doing. Um, that is, the person plans the adventure and administers the gameplay, like a referee. More importantly, a game master therapist needs the ability to assess player needs and change the game according, accordingly to accommodate them. Sometimes the accommodations go beyond disabilities and life skills. For example, some therapeutic RPGs accommodate a player's gender to help work through past experiences with gender-based discrimination, even ones as common as being excluded from games due to being a woman. Fortunately, Hawk's research includes a focus on gender bias in gaming as well. Studies heartily confirm what many women and non-binary players already know. They're sometimes excluded from playing and often experience discriminatory comments from fellow players. According to his research, 42% of all gamers experience derogatory comments. That is, nearly half of the general gaming population experiences negativity in gaming. While online gaming and collectible card games had higher levels of discrimination, Hawk still found that tabletop RPGs' reputation is tainted with bias and discrimination. Hawk explained that most of the work in making people comfortable comes from knowing what made them uncomfortable. For example, if a person has experienced heavy amounts of discrimination playing online RPGs, they might be more receptive to in-person gaming, like tabletop RPGs or LARP, where the possibility of discrimination is less. If they go with Hawk's therapeutic RPGs, it's his job to ensure minimized bias. But the therapeutic RPGs almost do this work for him. He found that when people game together around a table, 
their prejudice eventually melts away because they see the players as actual humans rather than just abstract players. Hawk found that even players with biases against trans people became more accepting of trans teammates as the therapeutic gaming rolled on. With your help, RPG therapy can become a reality along with a healthier, nerdier generation. And with that, I will check in with you, Dr. Mathis, and see if you'd like to add anything. No, I'm okay. Thank you. Wow. After me talking all that time, I'm very surprised. Okay. All right. Let's get to the next part. Some issues with gaming for processing reality. So a gaming session can be valuable in establishing some expected behaviors from various entities and characters. Where this process may not strongly fine-tune results, probably out in the real world, is, oh, okay, where this process may not strongly fine-tune results, probable out in the real world, one can often pause a scene and ask for help or clarification. In other words, you can't do that in real life, but you can do it in the game. And so sometimes the results are not always quite portable to a real-life scenario in a way that might be useful but is not commonly done. And asking for such a crutch is a behavior that would not be considered neurotypical or socially appropriate in many places. And to be really clear, I'm not actually suggesting that if it would make you feel more comfortable, don't do this but just be prepared for it to be startling to people if you do. That's all I'm saying. And, you know, maybe it would be nice if we normalized being able to ask for this kind of help if you need it, because there are some people who really do. Also, one is almost always in a fictionalized setting that can be known and studied in advance before interacting with it including emphasis on unexpected differences such as alien races, strange customs, unusual terrain, and so on. One also has some constraints on who one may run into due to the storyteller's notes, time available to game, and number of fellow players to run other characters. Unlike real life where one can encounter anyone who exists without warning or explanation. In other words, like if your storyteller only has notes for 10 non-player characters, which are the not players that you interact with, like the dude in the tavern or the monster that you need to ask a question. Um, If he's only got notes for 10 characters, then that's all you're going to run into. But in real life, you can run into anybody that can get to you. So there is that to consider, you know, that it's sort of artificially controlled by some of those situations. Another issue is that gaming, whether role-playing, LARP, or even video games, can be compelling escapism. And we did a whole segment on this last year. A therapist can determine personally how safe that is. For example, some patients may need some escape, while some could have trouble reorienting afterwards and should not indulge. This is subjective according to one's ability to keep a sense of reality especially as measured in a schizoid or schizotypal sense. One of the main reasons we have not relied as heavily on peer-vetted papers and other clinical material on this topic is that outside of Hawke's research, it has not been all that long that any clinical material has existed. 
According to a 2021 LinkedIn article on the topic, and it was, this was called Question, has any scientific research been done on the efficacy of RPGs for ASD? The RPG Research Archives lists all known research on the effect of role-playing games. When the website Archives went live in 2004, there were only about 50 research studies. By 2016, there were around 3,000 content items on the effects of RPGs. As of 2021, RPG research founders Hawk Robinson had an archive with over 10,000 content items. The challenge has been keeping up with this massive increase in studies, and there is now a dedicated research archivist team migrating all of the content to a new platform. That's actually currently still going on. So this is improving, but it is still scientifically young as an accepted and supported topic. And here I'm going to pause and check in with Dr. Mathis. I'm still okay. Um, all right. <laughs> okay. So we are coming to conclusions, closing remarks, and final suggestions. Um, in conclusion, role-playing games have previously often been overlooked as a tool for socialization and other personal and societal interaction therapies. Although some aspects of gaming are coming into more frequent use in some therapeutic settings, we hope that knowing this form of therapy is out there will facilitate its use to help more people in mastering necessary social skills. So um, is there anything that you want to get into with any of the sections? Well, what I would say is, you know, there is no one size fits all. So, you know, if this is something that folks, certain folks would find very appealing, other folks would not, just kind of like the music approach that I use. And I think the real trick here is to match uh, the therapeutic technique with the issues being brought to the table and the personality of the person that you're working with. And certainly, sometimes we have to get very creative uh, in the stuff that we do because it's the, the more traditional stuff just doesn't work with uh, with certain folks, and you know you have to get creative. And the only way we're going to do that is by trying different. Uh, yeah, calling, trying to close on, so to speak, and see what fits and what doesn't fit, and having people do research in the area to see the viability of some of the stuff with folks. And, you know, that's just the, kind of the bottom line. And particularly with some folks, you have to get incredibly creative. So my feeling is, you know, whatever works is whatever works. And if we can find a way to reach certain people using uh, less traditional ways, I'm all for that as long as we're not damaging folks. Yep, ab- absolutely, and uh, I, I think that is an attitude that this kind of therapy has entered the building with that assumed originally, which is good and and helpful, and and that's nice to see. You know, I think that it's not a therapy for everyone, but it's been a lot of help for some people where traditional therapy hasn't been enough, and that's one yeah. of the things that's nice about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, on behalf of myself, Dr. Mathis, and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who might be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, etc. So normally I would say we'll see you guys in two weeks, but it may be about a month and maybe a little longer. Um, and we'll have a new topic for you soon. 
I'll keep you informed. We may run some of our uh, popular episodes in this time slot in the meantime. So if there's something that you guys want to hear, uh, message the page and let me know. There's a pinned post on Facebook. So you can see a list of all the shows we've done ever, and we've reordered it. So the more recent stuff is at the top. And that way you all can see what we have available, and we can cover something that will help you out in the meantime. We also want to give a shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Travel It's Radio tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Florida Suncoast Jazz Festival returns for its 32nd year next month on the weekend before Thanksgiving. Held on Sand Key in Clearwater Beach, the event will include more than 80 jazz musicians intent on keeping the musical concept not only alive but thriving. Learn more about the event held at resort settings overlooking the Gulf of Mexico where Longtime director Joan Dragon visits Travelage Radio as Dan Schlossberg and co-host Mary Ellen Ingently ask Joan what makes the festival so popular, who will head this year's event, and how and where to buy tickets. This will be the 469th episode of Travelage Radio as it finishes its 11th season. Wow, that's a long time, guys. Good on you. Okay, next up, Sports Talk with the Guys, Saturday morning extravaganza, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Roger actually gets up at 6 in the morning in his garage because he's a crazy person. Uh, the morning, Monday morning quarterbacks are live on Saturday morning uh, on StreamYard. Check the NDB Media page on Facebook for links and times. <clears throat> next up is the Walking Dead online viewing party this Sunday, the 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please join me for Variant, Season 11, Episode 19. The official AMC synopsis is, Eugene goes on the run and Mercer is tasked to find him. Aaron's group faces a complication on the road. And then after that, also Sunday the 23rd is Season 11, Episode 20, What's Been Lost? Synopsis, Daryl and Carol's search for their disappeared friends. Uh, Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega. Monday, obviously, 10 p.m., Roger D. Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. Tuesday, 10 p.m., Eastern Time, Phantom Access, We Can Review. Join the TV tantrum of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they dig into another night of television. Recent shows have included The Walking Dead, Resident Alien, She-Hulk, and or at Quantum Leap, uh, Interview with the Vampire, House of the Dragon, and whatever else sounds intriguing. And then Saturday the 22nd, Ever New. That's at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time, with Chris M. Smith, host, Hannah M. Crane, co-host, and their guests. Ever New is about living out loud, forging lasting connections, and visiting with effervescent thinkers and dreamers. It's an uplifting hour that promises to leave everyone feeling better. So who's up for some fun? A new, ever new podcast will air every other Saturday at the same Twitch NDB Media link. Uh, That's also on the public NDB Media page. Please look for The Rock and Roll Shrank on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and on the web at rockandrollshrank.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And rock on. Good night.